This is Naima Novetsky from TanakhStudy.com. Today we'll be continuing our study of Aikra Parak Yutet, Chapter 19. We'll look at the first few of the many mitzvot discussed in the chapter. As we pointed out in our last class, according to some counts, the chapter contains 48 distinct mitzvot, including each of the Ten Commandments. Many of the laws listed appear elsewhere in the Torah in similar formulations, but there are also laws which are unique to here. As we learn the chapter over the next few classes, we won't have time to look at each and every one of the mitzvot in depth, but I'll try to at least give a taste of everything and choose a few mitzvot from each section of the chapter to delve into more extensively. Let's resume where we left off last class and look at verses 3 through 10. Pasuk Gimel Ish imo v'aviv tirau Each one of you shall respect his mother and his father. Ve'et shabtotai tishmoru You shall keep my Sabbath. Ani Hashem Elokichem. I am Hashem, your God. Al tifnu el ha'edilim, don't turn to idols. Vilohe masecha lo ta'asulachem, nor make molten gods for yourselves. Ani Hashem Elokichem. I am Hashem, your God. As we noted in our last class, these versions mention most of the commandments listed in the first tablet of the Decalogue, but in reverse order. Moving from fear of parents, to keeping Shabbat, to refraining from idolatry, and finally, to the statement, I am the Lord, your God. As we explained, while the Decalogue's order is fundamental, starting with what is most important, ours is educational, taking a person step by step to belief and fear of God. A person naturally fears their parents, recognizing that they watch over all they do and that they are never indifferent to their deeds. He can learn from that relationship to fear God, who similarly watches over all. Each of the mitzvot that we just read are well-known, but I nonetheless want to focus a bit of attention on the first one, the command to fear your parents, a mitzvah and relationship which is so intuitive and so logical, and yet so often fraught with friction. As is well-known, the formulation here is slightly different from that mentioned in the Decalogue. There we read, Kabed et avicha v'et imecha. There, we are commanded to honor our parents while here we are commanded to fear them. Interestingly, nowhere are we commanded to love our parents, only to fear and respect them. This is in contrast to what is expected of us when relating to Hashem. We have verses commanding fear of God, et Hashem elokacha tira, and those requiring love, va'ahavta et Hashem elokacha, but no verse mandating that we honor God. I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind this, Perhaps it's obvious and natural that one will love their parents, and so no command is necessary. While respect and fear are things that are not always present in the child-parent relationship. With regard to Hashem in contrast, perhaps it's reverence which is the natural emotion, and thus omitted, while love is not necessarily expected. This though is not at all conclusive, especially considering that fear of God would seem to be just as natural as reverence and it is nonetheless commanded. Still, it's worth noting both what's commanded and what is not, and thinking about the potential reasons. A second difference in the formulations relates to the order of the objects of the command. In the Decalogue, the father precedes the mother, while by us, the mother precedes the father. Rashi explains that a child naturally fears his father more than his mother, since he is the one more likely to rebuke him 
And so the verses stress, no, make sure you also fear your mother. By respect, the opposite is true. One more naturally reveres his mother who endears him to her with kindly speech. And so the verse stresses, make sure to also revere your father. Though obviously respect and fear are two very different emotions, one might ask, from a practical perspective, what is included in each obligation? How does one fulfill the obligation to fear or to respect? Are we speaking of feeling an emotion or doing a concrete action which demonstrates that emotion? Chazal suggests the latter and give examples of how to fulfill each mitzvah. As formulated in the Halachic Code of the Rambam, Morah, lo omeid bimkomo, velo yoshev bimkomo. Fear includes not standing in his place and not sitting in his place. Velo soter edvarav, velo machria edvarav, not contradicting his words or determining his words. Velo yikralo bishmo, lo bechayav, velo bimoto. And he should not call him by name in either life or death. What about respect? Ma'achil umashkeh, ma'bish umechaseh mishalav. Respect includes giving one's parents food and drink and clothing them from the money of the father. V'me'in mamon la'av, v'yesh mamon la'ben, kofinoto v'zan aviv v'imo kifimashu hu yachol. And if the father does not have sufficient funds, but the son does, one forces the son to supply the father as much as he can. Umotzi umachnis, and he brings him to and fro, and he serves him just as a servant serves a rabbi. Looking at the list, it becomes obvious that fear includes all of the negative commands, what one is not allowed to do when interacting with their parents, while respect includes the positive commands, what we should do. Interestingly, though halacha expects a lot from the child, it is not oblivious to the toll that caring for a parent can take on a child, even from a purely financial perspective. Thus, while one is required to feed and clothe one parent, this is Michel Av, from the father's pocket, unless the child is financially stable while the parent is not. The Gemara discusses the lengths to which one must go to respect one's parents, and also the limit. It tells us that even if a parent embarrasses you publicly, or throws your wallet into the sea, you still need to respect them. Even if your parents transgress the Torah's laws, one is still obligated in kibbutz harim. On the other hand, if a parent tells their child to transgress a law, one need not listen. This is learned out from the juxtaposition in our verses of the two commands, ish imo v'aviv tirau, your father and your mother you shall fear, and the et shabtotai tishmoru, and you shall keep my, shab my Shabbatot. One must fear one's mother and father, but not at the expense of keeping Shabbat. Yirat Shamaim, fear of heaven, comes before Yirat Horim, before fear of parents. I want to end the discussion on Kibbut Horim with a story from the Gemara, which is ostensibly about the relative values of living in Israel and the command to honor parents but which really goes to the heart of why parent-child relationships are sometimes fraught with friction and why a mitzvah like kibbut harim, which is so intuitive, is nonetheless sometimes not so easy to keep. The story is from Masachat Kiddushin 31a and tells of a certain Rav Asi who had an elderly mother. One day, she asked him to get her some jewelry, so she does. She then asks, I want a man. He responds, we'll look for you. 
She then goes a step further and says, I want a lovely man like you. This, Rav Asi already finds a bit disturbing. Rav Asi's response, he uproots and moves to Eretz Yisrael. Next we know, he hears that she is following him. Again we think, oh no, something is off. Rav Asi goes to his teacher and asks, what is the halacha regarding leaving Israel after having made Aliyah? Apparently, it seems, he wants to run away even further. He is told that it is prohibited. He asks a follow-up question. Towards mother, what is the halacha? And with those two words, towards mother, we realize that our reading of Rav Asi's question was wrong. He actually was not looking to run away again, but rather to greet his mother. He is told, I don't know what the halacha is. He waits a bit and then asks again and is told, if you already made up your mind, may Hashem bring you back in peace. Rav Asi is then all worried that he's angered his rabbi for pestering him with his question, for asking even though he sort of already decided what answer he wanted to hear. And so he asks a colleague if the rabbi is mad at him. The colleague reassures him, and then the story ends. Between all that, he heard that his mother's casket had arrived. Rav Asi says, had I known, I would have never left. The Gemara's ending is ambiguous. Had Rav Asi known what, would he have never left from where? Is he saying that from a halachic perspective, had he known his mother was dead, he would not have asked about leaving Israel to greet her? Or is he saying, had I known she was dying, I would never have left to come to Israel in the first place? Rav Yonatan Feintuck, in an article on this story, adds a third possibility. He suggests that the whole story is attempting to show that sometimes we hear one thing while someone is saying something else. Rav Asi thinks his teacher is mad at him when really he is not. We, the readers, thought Rav Asi was looking to run away even further from his mother when he was in fact looking to do the opposite, to greet him, to greet her. Rav Feintuck thus suggests that Rav Asi, at the end of the story, says, had I known of this about myself, that sometimes I jump to conclusions about what a person is saying without giving them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they mean something else, then I would have acted differently. Maybe when my mom said, I want someone lovely like you, she was simply proud of me and asking me to find someone similar. Or perhaps she was not talking about a match at all, but simply saying, I wish you would spend more time with me. Had Rav Asi realized that, he might have stayed put and had a different relationship. The story highlights a really important lesson in relationships, especially intergenerational ones, like that of a parent and child. How key proper communication can be for a successful relationship. Do we hear only what we want or expect to hear? Or do we hear what the other person is really saying? Kibud Horim, respecting parents, and perhaps Kibud Bonim, Kibud Banim, respecting children, requires trying really hard to hear the other side. With that, let's continue to the next set of laws in our chapter, verses 5 through 8, which speak of the Korban Shlamim, or more specifically, the time frame in which it must be eaten. Pasuke. When you offer a peace offering to Hashem, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day you offer it and on the next day. And if anything remains until the third day, it shall be burned with fire. 
If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It will not be accepted. And anyone who eats of it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the holy thing of Hashem. And that soul shall be cut off from his people. These laws discuss the Korban Shlamim, a voluntary offering from which the lay Israelite might eat. The verses teach that it is permitted to eat from its meat on the day that the sacrifice is brought and on the following day until nightfall. Since in Judaism, the day begins at night, the third day mentioned in the verse begins already at nightfall after the second day. At that point, anything that is left over, hanotar, should be burnt. If someone eats of the sacrifice after this time frame, it is as if he has removed the sanctity from the sacrifice and is punished with death. These laws have already been discussed in Vayikra chapter 7 in almost identical language, making one wonder at the need for the repetition. It's possible that they are reiterated here because earlier the laws regarding leftovers were brought only tangentially. The real focus of the initial unit had been the role played by the priests in offering the Korban Shlamim. Here, the focus is the role of the late Israelite and his aspirations to Kedusha. Significantly, the one, phrase with, the one phrase which is unique to our unit relates to this very concept. When giving the reason for the punishment of death, the verse shares, Ki et kodesh Hashem chilel, because he profaned that which was holy to God. Other reasons offered for the repetition are more practical in nature. As this is the only offering eaten by an Israelite rather than a priest, repetition might be necessary to ensure that they are strict in their observance. Abarbanel adds that since this offering is a voluntary one, a person might be more likely to think that he can eat of it whenever he wants. And so the Torah makes sure to warn once again that this is not true. Even though it is brought voluntarily, you still cannot do whatever you want the korban must be brought in a manner that will make it pleasing to Hashem. A second question regarding these laws relates to their placement. Why are they juxtaposed to the commands regarding idolatry and belief in God? Rav David Tzvi Hoffman suggests that the placement is actually very logical, for sacrifice is the next step in worship of Hashem. After you accept Hashem as God and learn to, re- to revere and fear Him, there is a desire to get close. In bringing a korban shlamim, a person can connect and rise to the next level of holiness. Alternatively, it's possible that the laws of notar, of those leftovers, are a reaction to idolatrous practices, and they therefore follow the injunction against turning to idols. Yeshayahu chapter 65 implies that part of idolatrous worship might have included offering or eating of putrid meat. In an era before refrigeration, three-day-old leftovers would likely have begun to rot. Prohibiting their consumption thus ensures that we distinguish ourselves from idolatrous practices. Either way, these verses form an appropriate closing to the initial unit of the chapter, which focused on one's relationship to God. Verses 9 and 10 open the next unit, which focuses instead on interpersonal relationships. The first mitzvah of the section discusses giving gifts to the poor from one's produce. Here, too, Rav David Tzvi Hoffman attempts to explain the juxtaposition of these laws to what precedes them. He notes a contrast between the law of notar that we just discussed, which mandates that one not leave over from one sacrifice, and the mitzvot of matanot la'aniim, of gifts to the poor, 
which mandate that one must leave over from one's produce for the poor. He suggests that despite the opposite action, the purpose of both deeds is the same, to remind one that really all belongs to God. When bringing a sacrifice, one must finish the meat and not hoard it for later, recognizing that it is not ours to hoard. When reaping one's field, one must similarly recognize that the produce ultimately came from Hashem, and therefore we cannot hoard it only for ourselves, but must share of it with others. Let's read the verses inside. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am Hashem, your God. Verse 9 speaks of giving from your grain harvest to the poor, while verse 10 speaks of giving from a vineyard. Between the two verses, we learn of four distinct obligations, pe'ah, leket, ololot, and peret. We'll define each one and then speak about the group as a whole. Pe'ah refers to leaving a corner of one's field uncut for the poor. Though the Torah does not specify the size of the section, the Mishnah in Pesachat, in Mesachat Pe'ah mandates that it should be at least one-sixtieth of the field, but then adds, Even though there is no set size, one should keep three things in mind, the size of the field, the number of poor, and the amount of grain. The bigger the field, the crop, or the need, the more one should set aside for the mitzvah of peah. Rabbi Shimon in the Mishnah further teaches that the section left for the needy should be at the extremity of one's field, where you finish reaping. This is learned from the language of the verse, Do not finish reaping. You should reap most of your field, but leave over the last bit. The Sifra, the Midrash Halacha on Sefer Vayikra, gives several reasons for this choice, pointing out that it benefits both the poor and the owner. Had the farmer not left the section at the end, the poor person would likely waste his day hanging around the field while it is being reaped, not knowing when the owner is to leave a section for them to collect from. By leaving a section at the end, they know not to bother visiting until the end of the harvesting of the field. The location also benefits the owner. A poor person is less likely to steal of his produce if it is obvious that only the end of the field is left for them. Otherwise, a well-meaning person might deceive the needy into thinking that a section that was simply not yet reaped was being left for them. The second mitzvah, verse 9, leket, refers to individual sheaves that fall during the reaping, which one must leave for the poor. According to the halacha, if three or more fall together, one is not obligated to leave them. The equivalent of this mitzvah in a vineyard is peret, mentioned in verse 10, uferet karmacha lotavaket. If when gathering clusters of grapes, one or two grapes fall, they too should be left for the poor. The nature of the fourth mitzvah of the unit, the charmacha lota olel, known as ololot, is less clear. In our chapter, based on the parallel mitzvot in verse 9, one might assume that it refers to leaving a section of the vineyard for the poor. Ololot would be peah of the vine. This is in fact how the mitzvah is understood by Rashbam. 
On the other hand, in Devarim chapter 24, when these mitzvot of gifts to the poor are repeated, the mitzvah of Olavot is parallel to the mitzvah of Shechacha, a law not mentioned in our verses, which mandates that if when collecting bundles of wheat, one forgets a bundle outside, you should not return to retrieve it, but rather leave it for the poor. If so, Olavot in our verse might be the Shechacha of the vine, the need to leave any forgotten clusters outside for the needy. This is how Rambam appears to understand the mitzvah in a Sefer Mitzvot. One final possibility taken by many is that Olavot refers to those grapes which were late to ripen or which grow on the vine as individual grapes and not part of a cluster. The purpose of these mitzvot would seem to be obvious, concern for the welfare of those less fortunate. Nechama Leibowitz, though, questions this understanding, wondering whether one sheaf of wheat that has fallen here or there could possibly satisfy a, per, a poor person who gleans in the field. Would not one need an awful lot more to subsist upon? It should be noted, though, that the story of Ruth and Naomi in Megillat Ruth would seem to suggest that if one spends the day gleaning in the field, as did Ruth, it really is possible to gather enough to make a meal, or at least to supplement whatever else one might have at home. Nonetheless, perhaps for this reason, other explanations of the mitzvah have been offered which focus less on the receiver and more on the giver. Thus, Sefer HaChinuch shares that the mitzvah is meant to instill good midot in the giver. Hashem desired that his chosen nation be crowned with every good characteristic and that they have a blessed heart and generous nature. Nechama Leibowitz questions this understanding as well, pointing out that most of the mitzvot involving gifts to the poor result from an unintentional action, sheaves that have accidentally fallen, a bundle of wheat which was forgotten, and the like. If so, this would seem not to be the best way to inculcate generosity. This though might not be totally true. For even if the mitzvah begins with an unintentional action, the fact that you do not go to retrieve your sheaves or your bundle of wheat is quite intentional and as such provides a very important lesson in giving. Rev Hirsch points to one other lesson that these laws teach the giver. The lesson we mentioned earlier in the name of Rabbi David Zvi Hoffman, himself very influenced by Rav Hirsch. Recognition that all belongs to God. Rav Hirsch points out that at the moment of harvest, one is most likely to boast, this is mine. So through these mitzvot, Hashem teaches that there is no such thing as something being totally yours. When Hashem blessed your crops, he did so with the understanding that you were to give of them to the poor. Hashem is God of the entire nation and gave the land to all to benefit from. Rav Hirsch makes a second observation about our laws, noting that in contrast to what is found in most societies, Hashem does not leave charity to the good-naturedness of man, but rather obligates it, setting it as both the privilege of the poor and the obligation of the rich. Rav Hirsch suggests that it is for this reason that the mitzvot related to Hashem and those related to man flow seamlessly from one to another throughout our chapter, with no explicit divide. The Torah thereby teaches that really the two sets of laws are not are totally intertwined. To love God is to love man. All interpersonal mitzvot are also obligated by God. As Rav Hirsch writes, in a Jewish life guided by God, there is no opposition between the religious and the social. They are integrally connected in an organic bond. Judaism says, love Hashem 
and love your fellow man, for love of God includes love of man. Rav Hirsch concludes by explaining the juxtaposition of the laws of the Korban Shlamin and the gifts to the poor specifically, saying, Hayisod l'simchat ha-shlamim shel oshreinu, hugam hayisod l'achra yutenu l'oshram shel achirim. The laws of the Korban Shlamim, which end the first unit, are an expression of our happiness and thanksgiving to Hashem for what He has given us. And in that sense, they are a law between man and God. But they are also the foundation for the idea that as such, because we recede from Hashem, we must ensure the happiness of others from what we have been given, a mitzvah between man and his fellow man. To quickly summarize what we have looked at, we have seen a number of laws the laws of kibbutz horim, honoring parents, and the centrality of proper communication. We have seen the law of not leaving over and hoarding the korban shlamim, either in recognition that all really belongs to God, or as a reaction against idolatrous practices. And finally, we looked at the mitzvot of matanot la'aniyim, gifts to the poor, which is both a mitzvah of social welfare, a lesson in giving, and a reminder that God is owner of all. This back and forth between between mitzvot related to God and man highlights how in Judaism, the religious and the social are all part of one package. In our next year, we'll delve into several of the other societal laws in our chapter, those which center on honest dealings and love of your neighbor.